Section 8 of the South American Republics, Volume 1, by Thomas Cleland Dawson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 1, Argentina. Chapter 6, Completion of the War of Independence. Belgrano followed up his victory at Tucumán by another invasion of the Bolivian plateau. Even to a trained general and a regular army, such a campaign would have been difficult. The defective organization of his hastily gathered militia, his own unfamiliarity with the art of war, and the fact that he was opposed by a clever commander, whose army was better drilled and better adapted to operations in that high altitude, all conspired to leave the result in no doubt. October the 1st, 1813, he was badly defeated at Villapugio, and six weeks later his army was nearly destroyed at Iowuma. With the remnant, he fled south to Argentine territory and was replaced in his command by San Martin. The advent of this consummate general and single-minded patriot revolutionized the character of the military operations. Unlike his predecessors and colleagues, he did not concern himself with political ambitions. He had but one purpose, to drive the Spaniards from South America. He knew but one way of achieving it, to whip them on the field of battle. He had none of the brilliantly attractive qualities, none of the eloquence of charm of most South American leaders. He had a horror of display and made but one speech in all his life. By sheer force of will and attention to detail, he organized an efficient regular army. The victories that followed were as much due to his painstaking care and foresight as to his brilliant strategical combinations and admirable tactical dispositions. Because he thought another could finish his work better than himself, he voluntarily resigned supreme power on the very eve of the campaign which expelled the last Spaniard from South America, and, disdaining to offer an explanation, went into lifelong exile. So modest was he that his name and services well nigh fell into oblivion. That he is now recognized as the saviour of South American liberty is due as much to the literary labours of the greatest of Argentine historians, Bartolomé Mitre, as to the spontaneous opinion of his countrymen during the first decades after his retirement. General San Martín was born on the 25th of February, 1778, in a little town which had been one of the Jesuit missions far up the Uruguay River. His mother was a Creole, and his father a Spanish officer, who destined his son to his own profession. When a child of only eight, he was taken to the mother country and educated in the best military schools of Spain. At an early age, he entered the army and served in all the many wars in which Spain engaged after the outbreak of the French Revolution. He saw much active service and became a thorough master of his profession. He imbibed liberal ideas and joined a secret society pledged to the work of establishing a republic in Spain and independent governments in her colonies. When the Spanish people rose against the French conquests, San Martin threw himself heart and soul into the conflict on the side of the patriots and distinguished himself in the battles that opened the way to the recovery of Madrid. He was promoted to the lieutenant colonelcy but the next year he resigned his commission to return to his native land to aid her in her fight for independence. By a curious coincidence, the ship that bore the South American who achieved the independence of his country was called the George Cunning, after the European who, thirteen years later, did most to secure the independence of South America from external attack. He landed in Buenos Aires in March 1812. 
At that moment the anti-Spanish revolution seemed everywhere to be on the point of suffocation. Bolivia and Uruguay were lost. The reaction was gaining ground in Venezuela. Chile was menaced by an army from Lima and shortly fell back into Spanish hands. Peru was steady for the old system. Only in Argentina and New Granada were the fires of insurrection still burning, and between them intervened Peru, the stronghold of Spanish power in South America, a citadel impregnable behind mountains, deserts, and the ocean. The war of independence could only succeed by aggressive campaigns, which must be conducted through difficult country and over the whole continent, and against forces superior in both numbers and equipment. San Martín's first step was to organize and drill some good regiments in Buenos Aires. He selected the finest physical and moral specimens of youth that the province afforded, and subjected them to a rigid discipline. After his ruthless pruning, only the born soldiers remained, and this select corps furnished generals and officers for the wars that followed. On succeeding Belgrano in command of the Army of the North, San Martin saw at once that all attempts at conquer Peru by an advance through Bolivia were foredoomed to failure. A campaign over a mountainous plateau, with the Spaniards in possession of the strategic points, and the inhabitants divided in their sympathies would be suicidal. On the other hand, to attack and defeat the Spanish forces in Peru itself was absolutely necessary. The 300,000 inhabitants of Argentina, distracted by intestine warfare, could not hope indefinitely to resist the Spanish power, backed by secure possession of the rest of the continent. Decisive victories were necessary to encourage the partisans of independence in Chile, Peru, Bolivia and Ecuador. San Martín's solution of the problem was to organize an army on the eastern slope of the Andes, to invade Chile, to drive the Spaniards thence, and to make the country the base of further operations, to improve a fleet, and with it gain command of the Pacific, and finally to attack Peru from the coast. The scheme seemed complicated, but San Martín was one of those rare geniuses born with a capacity for taking infinite pains, and his pertinacity was indefatigable. He foresaw and provided against every contingency, and carried his plan to a triumphant conclusion. The story of the liberation of South America within the succeeding eight years might be completely told in the form of two biographies, San Martín's and Bolívar's. Trusting the defense of the Bolivian frontier to a few line soldiers and the gauchos of Salta, San Martín solicited and obtained an appointment as governor of Cuyo. This province was directly east of the populous central part of Chile, and was the refuge of the patriot Chileans, who had been compelled to flee into exile after quarrels among themselves had delivered their country to the Spaniards. His authority was purely military, and derived only from the dictum of the revolutionary government at Buenos Aires, but San Martín was not a man to hesitate on account of scruples over constitutional questions. He laid the province under contribution and started to create an army capable of crossing the Andes and coping with the Spanish regulars in Chile. The inhabitants of Cuyo were determinedly anti-Spanish, brave, enduring and enthusiastic. It was a good recruiting ground in itself. The Chilean exiles were numerous and all anxious to join in an effort to redeem their country. The government at Buenos Aires sent him a valuable addition in a corps of manumitted Negro slaves, 
but his nucleus was the regiments which he himself had drilled at Buenos Aires. Though civil wars went on in the coast provinces, he was not to be diverted from his purpose. He kept aloof from them, and for the three years laboured steadily, building his great war machine, recruiting, drilling, instructing officers, taxing his province, gathering provisions, building portable bridges, making powder, casting guns, organising his transports and commissariat. Meanwhile, Alvear, his old colleague in the Spanish army, had assumed the leading position in the oligarchy that ruled at Buenos Aires. He suppressed the triumvirate and placed his relative, Posadas, at the head of the government. The patriot armies were besieging Montevideo from the land side, but it was not until a fighting demon of an Irish merchant captain, William Brown, had been placed in command of a few ships which the Buenos Aires had gathered, that there was any hope of reducing the place. The remarkable man was nearly as important a factor as San Martin himself in the war against Spain. With incredible audacity he attacked the Spanish ships wherever he found them. Numbers and odds made no difference, and he was never so dangerous as just after an apparent reverse. His victory on the 14th of June put the Spanish fleet out of commission. The reduction of Montevideo followed as a matter of course, and the destruction of the Spanish sea power on the Atlantic side made San Martin's campaign on the Pacific coast possible. Civil wars broke out between the Buenos Aires oligarchy and local military chiefs in the Gaucho provinces, and soon hurled Posadas from power. He was succeeded by Alvear, but the commanders of the armies refused to recognize the latter's authority, and an insurrection in Buenos Aires itself drove him too into exile. One military dictator succeeded another, while the provinces more and more ignored the Buenos Aires pretensions to hegemony. The frail fabric of the Confederation fast crumbled into fragments. With the end of the Napoleonic Wars, reinforcements began to arrive from Spain, and the royal arms were again victorious and threatened to wipe out the distracted Republic. Rondeau, one of the generals who had helped depose Posadas and Alvear, had been rewarded with command of the Army of the North. Disregarding the experience of his predecessors, he made the third great effort to conquer Bolivia and strike at the heart of Spanish power in Peru by the overland route. His campaign ended with the crushing defeat at Sipe Sipe. Considerable Spanish forces followed him down into the Argentine plains, but as San Martin had predicted, the Gaucho cavalry under Güemes were able to keep back their advance. Belgrano and Rivadavia had been sent to Spain in 1813 to try and arrange terms on the basis of autonomy or the making of Buenos Aires a separate kingdom under some members of the Spanish family. They were informed that nothing except unconditional submission would be accepted, and they were then ordered to leave Madrid. Scheme after scheme was presented in Buenos Aires, discussed and abandoned. Belgrano wanted to make a descendant of the Incas emperor of South America. Others wished to offer submission to Great Britain in return for a protectorate. The English government rejected the overtures. A more popular idea was to elect a monarch from the Portuguese Braganza family, then reigning in Brazil. The only definite result of all these confused negotiations was a formal declaration of independence, made on the 9th of July, 1816, by a congress at which most of the provinces were represented, and which met in the city of Tucumán. 
Many of the members had no hope of being able to enforce such a declaration. However, it cleared the way for obtaining foreign help, and negotiations were continued with a view to inducing some European prince to accept the throne. Artigas, the independent military chieftain of Uruguay and Entre Rios, attacked in 1813 the missions to the left of Upper Uruguay, which the Rio Grande Brazilians had seized twelve years before. He was defeated by the troops of John VI, who followed him into Uruguay proper, and in 1816 captured Montevideo. Though the Buenos Aires had been compelled to concede Uruguay's independence, the movement excited among them an intense jealousy of the Portuguese. The scheme for a Braganza monarch at once became unpopular and impracticable. The taciturn general in Cuyo was, however, preparing a thunderbolt that would clear the Argentine sky of all these clouds, except that most portentous of all, civil war. After three years of incessant preparation, San Martin believed that his army was ready to undertake the great campaign. Though it numbered only 4,000 men, it was the most efficient body of troops that ever gathered on South American soil. Among the Argentine contingent were the picked youth of Buenos Aires and the provinces, reckless, enthusiastic youths, whose ambition, patriotism, or love of adventure made them willing to follow anywhere San Martin might dare to lead. Not inferior to their white comrades were the manumitted Negroes, the cruelest charges and the heaviest losses fell to their lot, and few of them ever returned over the Andes. The Chilean exiles were picked men, those who preferred death to submission, or who had offended so deeply that their only hope of seeing their homes was to return sword in hand. This force had been drilled and instructed in all the art of war, as practiced during the Napoleonic era by San Martin himself, a veteran soldier of the great European campaigns, one who had fought with Wellington and against Massena and Salt. He was indefatigable in attending to details, and he seems to have foreseen everything. The last months were spent in preparing rations of parched corn and dried beef, in gathering mules for mountain transportation, and in making sledges to be used on the slopes which were too steep for cannon on wheels. The most careful calculations were made of the distances to be traversed, every route was surveyed, spies were in every pass, the Spaniards were kept in uncertainty as to which of the numerous passes along hundreds of miles of frontier would be used for the attack. San Martin's real intentions were not revealed by him, even to the members of his staff, until the very eve of the advance. When summer came in 1817, and all the passes were freed from snow, he was ready. In the middle of January, he broke camp at Mendoza, and divided his army into two divisions. Directly to the west was the Uspallata Pass, then, as now, the usual route between western Argentina and central Chile. Its Chilean outlet opens into the plain of Aconcohua, which is north of Santiago, and only separated from that capital by one transverse spur of the Andes. Off to the north was the more difficult pass of Patos, its eastern entrance also easily accessible from Mendoza, though by a longer detour, and opening at its other end into the same valley of Aconcohua. The smaller of the two divisions was to advance over the Uspallata Pass, so timing its movements as to reach the open ground of the Aconcohua Valley at the same time as the larger division, which, under San Martin himself, went to the north around the Patos route, 
the Spaniards had a guard at the summit of the Uspallata Pass, but the advance troops of the Argentines charged it. Before reinforcements could come up, the division was over, and advancing confidently down the canyon on the Chilean side. Had the Spaniards sent up a force sufficient to prevent the Uspallata division from debouching onto the Yaconcogua plain, it would have been caught in a trap. The second division could have bottled it up from below by leaving a small body at the mouth of the canyon. But before the Spanish commander had made up his mind what to do, news came that another army was rapidly coming down the valley leading into the Aconjua valley from the north. Disconcerted by this attack from an unexpected direction, the Spanish commander hastened off with an inadequate force to repel it. He did not reach a defensible point in time. His vanguard was defeated, and he retreated along the high road to Santiago, leaving San Martin to reunite his two divisions at his leisure in the broad Aconcogua plain. Though the army had crossed the Andes over two of the loftiest and steepest passes in the world, so admirably had all dispositions been made that hardly a stop was necessary to refit and recruit. Artillery and cavalry, as well as infantry, were ready within four days after reaching the Chilean side to take up the pursuit of the Spaniards. Marco, the Spanish general, had not had sufficient time to concentrate his scattered regiments since the first news had come that San Martin was coming in force by the northern passes. Of his five thousand men, only two thousand were able to get between San Martin's advance and Santiago. The Argentine general was sure of having the largest numbers at the point of conflict, but the Spanish troops were veterans of the peninsula and were commanded by a skilful and resolute general. He concentrated his force in a strong position in a valley on the south side of the transverse range that separates Santiago from the Aconcogua Valley. He had hoped to make his stand at the top of the pass, there four thousand feet high, but San Martin had been too quick for him. However, the position was admirable for a stubborn defense. The high road to Santiago descended from the pass down a narrow valley, which, just in front of the Spanish position, opened into a larger valley, running at right angles. The artillery of the Spaniards commanded the narrow mouth of the upper valley, and on a side hill there was a room to deploy the infantry and cavalry. The Argentine troops would be enfiladed in a close gut before they could form in line of battle. San Martin employed the tactics of the Persians at Thermopyle. There was an abandoned road running over the summit a little to the west of the travelled route and debouching into the same valley a little below the Spanish position. Through this, O'Higgins, the chief of San Martin's Chilean allies, at two o'clock in the morning on February the 12th, started with 800 men. By eleven he had reached the main valley and turned up it to attack the Spaniards on their left flank. His first assault, made without waiting for the other division to come down in front, was repulsed. San Martin, sitting on his war-horse on the heights above, galloped down the slope, leaving orders to hasten the descent of the main body. As he reached the lower ground and joined the Chileans, he saw the head of his main column appear through the mouth of the pass. O'Higgins again attacked, and the Spaniards, taken in flank and with their centre assailed in echelon by the Argentine squadrons and battalions, were at a hopeless disadvantage. 
The position of their infantry was carried by the bayonet, while the Patriot cavalry charged the artillery and sabred the men at their guns. The infantry were the flower of the Spanish regulars. They formed a square and for a time held their stand. Finally, surrounded on their sides, their artillery gone, and fighting against double their number, they broke and retreated over the broken ground in their rear. Less than half escaped, and a quarter were killed on the field and in the pursuit. The Patriots lost only twelve killed and one hundred and twenty wounded. Though the numbers engaged were insignificant, and though the victory was easily won, the Battle of Chacabuco was decisive in the struggle between Spain and her revolted subjects in the southern colonies. Since the outbreak of 1810, the revolutionary cause had been losing not only territory but morale, conviction, and self-confidence. Spanish authority seemed certain finally to be completely re-established, perhaps by a compromise and concession to autonomy, but still on a basis gratifying to the pride of the mother country. The day before San Martin started on his march over the Andes, Chile was quietly submissive, Uruguay was occupied by Portuguese troops, Argentina was a mere loose aggregation of discordant and warring provinces, whose most intelligent statesmen had nearly given up hope of peace and autonomy, except by foreign aid or submission to some alien monarch. But the day after Chacabuco, the Spanish governor was flying from Santiago to the coast. Chile had become and has remained independent. In Argentina there was no more talk of Portuguese princes, of British protectorates, of compromise with Spain. The declaration of Tucumán had become a reality. There was much more hard fighting still to be done, and time after time during the next seven years the final result seemed to tremble in the balance. But hope and national spirit had been so aroused in South America that defeat was never irremediable. The rest of San Martín's military career belongs rather to the history of Chile and Peru than to that of Argentina. It is enough to say that he established his friend O'Higgins as dictator of Chile, thus assuring her cooperation in the prosecution of the war against Peru. Spanish successes in Chile and civil war in Argentina delayed for years his overmatching the Spanish naval power of the Pacific. Without command of the sea, he would have had to march his arm up to a desert coast between the Cordillera and the ocean, an undertaking almost impossible. The help of the Buenos Aires fleet was essential, and so was the aid of the Argentine treasury in buying more ships and paying foreign seamen. His friends at Buenos Aires were struggling for their lives against their rivals for supreme power. To San Martin's demand for assistance, they responded by begging him first to use his army to crush the rebellion. That he refused them in their hour of bitter need has been pointed out as a blot upon his fame, but his resolution was Spartan. Not even the considerations of gratitude to personal friends diverted him from his great purpose. He had that element of supreme great achievement, steadfastness to adhere to a purpose once conceived that nothing could shake. Pueyrredon might be driven into exile, the warring factions might tear Argentina into fragments, and jealous Cochrane might unjustly accuse him. The ambitious and selfish Bolivar might regard him only as an obstacle to his own supremacy. None of these things could change his course or alter his devotion to the one great purpose of his life. In 1820 he finally started up the coast, and in four months, without a pitched battle, he had rendered the Spanish position on the coast of Peru untenable. 
he met Bolívar at Guayaquil, and the personal interview between the liberators of the northern and southern halves of South America was the end of San Martin's public career. He went to it with the purpose of arranging a joint campaign to drive the Spanish from their last stronghold, the highlands of Peru. But Bolívar did not see his own way clear to cooperation. San Martin explained his predicament to no one. He uttered no word of complaint or regret. He simply gave up the command of the army, which he had led for seven years, and resigned the dictatorship of Peru. There was no place for him in distracted Argentina except as a leader in the civil wars, a role he disdained. He went into exile without saying a word as to the reason for his action. Rather than precipitate a division between the patriots, before the last Spaniard had been driven from South America, he submitted in silence to the reproach of cowardice. Rather than geopart independence, he sacrificed home, money, honors, even reputation itself. The history of the world records few examples of finer civic virtue. The rest of his life he spent poverty-stricken in Paris. Only once he tried to return to his native country. At Montevideo he heard that Buenos Aires was in the throes of another revolution and that his presence might be misconstrued. Without a word he took the next ship back to Europe. For many years his struggles against poverty and ill-health were pathetic. It was the generosity of a Spaniard and not a fellow countryman that relieved the last days of his life but throughout those weary thirty years he never wavered in his devotion to South America. His last utterance about public affairs was a vehement laudation of Rosas, tyrant though he thought him, because the latter had defied France and England when they disregarded Argentina's rights as a sovereign member of the family of nations. Reading was the only resource left to lighten his old age, and his last months were embittered by the approach of blindness. His heart began to be affected, symptoms of an aneurysm appeared, and he went to Boulogne to take the sea air. Standing one day on the beach, he felt the awful shock of pain that announced his approaching end. Quote, Gasping and raising his hand to his heart, he turned with a touching smile to that daughter, whoever followed him like a latter-day Antigone, and said, C'est l'orage que men opporte. On the 17th of August, 1850, being 72 years of age, he expired in the arms of his beloved daughter. Chile and Argentina have raised him statues. Peru has decreed a monument to his memory. The Argentine nation, at last one and united, as he had ever desired, has brought back his sacred remains and celebrated his apotheosis. Today his tomb may be seen in the Metropolitan Cathedral, bearing witness for Argentina to his just distinction as the greatest of all her men of action. End, quote. End of section 8